Let's start a new series, a new series that is uh, very something we all deal with that is very common, especially in our culture, and that is comparison. And we're going to look through the Word of God and study it for the cure for comparison because the Lord has it. He has the cure for all of our ailments. Why is comparison so prevalent in our culture? That's the question. Why is it so prevalent? It's most probably prevalent, so prevalent, not only because it's deeply rooted in sin and the fallen world, but it's so prevalent because you see it all the time, where normally you wouldn't be able to compare that much, but because of social media, it's in a constant state of comparison in front of you. If you are on any form of social media, comparison is constant. So let's read a few quotes and let's look at this. Craig Rochelle says this, Comparing makes you feel either inferior or superior, neither honors God. Isn't that true? Now, comparison is not just a cultural issue. As I said, it is a fallen sin issue. And we can find comparison in Genesis 4, can't we? Cain and Abel. That was a comparison battle. And sibling um, often are in comparison already. Genesis 37, again, family comparison. We've got Joseph and his brothers in comparison. The children of Israel missed God's best for them and God's plan for their life because they wanted a king, what does the Bible say? Like the other nations. That sounds like comparison to me, doesn't it? And they struggled because of that for years. So go with me to John 21. John 21, 20 to 22. Now, we're going to read this, but this is part two. And before we can get to this next week, we have to understand what goes on before that. But this is very clear comparison in the Bible. This is the end of Jesus is getting ready to ascend. He's been seen by 500. The disciples are back fishing. Jesus is sitting on the shore. Um, Got a fire going. They say, have you caught anything? Remember, this is the way that he started the ministry with them. He said, have you caught anything? They said, no, we've been here all night and we're pros. They said, just throw on the other side, it'll be there. They do. As soon as they realize it's the Lord, Peter jumps out, as he always does, steps out first for the good and bad, swims to shore. The other disciples follow, and here's the conversation reinstating Peter and John. Really, not just Peter, though. Other disciples are there also. So here we set it up in verse 20. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. That's John, that's the writer of this book, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Now remember, it's Peter who asked him to do that. Peter asked John, hey, find out, since you're the closest to him, since he'll tell you anything, find out who it is. He'll do it. Peter, seeing him, said, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is it to you? You follow me. That's very clear comparison, right? We all see that very clearly in verse 22 right there. Peter's saying, hey, what about this guy? What about what's going on with this guy's life? What about what he's supposed to do? So this is very clear comparison, but this is the very end. This is, this is uh, chapter 2. You have to look at chapter 1 first to understand how we got there. So let's look at our main text. We had to know this. We had to understand this comparison and see this. Now let's look. John 21, 15 to 19. 
So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Change the word from just feeding to tend is like a pastoral word. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. All right. So now we need to look at part one before we get into part two. All right. So let's look at this verse 15. So when he had said, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And what are the next few words? What are the next three words specifically? More than these. He asked the question three times, but this is the only time he says more than these. The reason he says that is because he takes Peter and he says, Peter, we need to go and watch the first movie. This is the second. Let's go back to a time in your life. This is very specific to draw on an experience that he and Peter and the disciples had already had us experience specifically about comparison, specifically the thing that would be the downfall of Peter's life up to this point. And it's found in Matthew 26. Do you love me more than the people around you, these other disciples? Yes, you're the de facto leader. Do not think because God's grace is upon a leader that he has it all together and he's greater than. No, that's just God's grace to him. Now watch this. This is the question Jesus brings Peter back to this specific time in life. Matthew 6, uh, 26, excuse me, Matthew 26, 31. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble. How many? All. Because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been risen, I will go before you to Galilee. That's where they are now in our story. Verse 33, Peter answered something contrary to the Lord. You're always in trouble if we speak contrary to the Lord. That's why we study this. I don't want to speak contrary to him. Amen? Do you? I want to bless life, so I don't want to speak contrary to him. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are able to stumble, I'm comparing myself to the people around me. I'm about to cause angst and frustration, and, and this disunity is, this unity is going to be blown up because of my statement. Even if all are made to stumble because of you, 
I will never be made to stumble. So he fast forward. He, he's sitting with Peter at the, sea, the seashore. He rewinds it back to that scene. Then it propels him back and says, Now, Peter, is your statement true or is mine? Is what you said was true and your heart was pure when you said it or was mine? And Peter can do nothing but throw up his hands and say, Oh, goodness. I have compared, this was wrong, my heart was wrong, my heart was sinful, yours was right. That's the picture there. So this is the first thing we learned from John 21, number one in your notes. Comparison is sinful. It's not a bad habit. It's not a family trait. It's not just because everyone else does it. Comparison is sinful. Well, you may say, okay, I kind of knew that already. But we need to really understand it and reflect on it because comparison on the front side doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But when sin is conceived, it may be small, but it leads to an absolute life of destruction, doesn't it? Look at from that moment of comparison what happens to Peter's life until we find him here on the seashore getting restored. It's destruction, just like sin brings. Sin is so destructive in its nature. And Jesus is going to say, more than these. And all the picture, all the memories come flooding back in. And he brings Peter to a place of repentance. He wants Peter to realize, you cannot serve me comparing. You cannot lead You cannot lead anyone in anything in a comparison mindset. That has to be rid, totally rid in your life, gotten rid of in your life. This is why. Because if you're going to feed my sheep or tend my sheep or do anything for me, it can have nothing to do with comparison. Now, this is what's so beautiful about this. He says more than these the first time, right? Does he say it the second time? No. Does he say it the third time? No. This is the picture of forgiveness. There's no words of repentance we have in the Bible of Peter, correct? But when you're dealing with the Savior, the Savior knows the heart of man. And he brings Peter that place of confession. And Peter says, oh, I was wrong. Even words don't, we don't have any words here, but you see the repentance in Peter's heart. And Jesus says, I don't have to say it again. This is what's wonderful about the Savior. The physician, once he does surgery, he doesn't have to do it again. He's done. He's fixed it. It's mentioned no more. It's cast as far as the east is from the west. Peter's forgiven in that. Now, is everything fixed with Peter? No, but Peter is forgiven. And from the place of forgiveness, now we can go forward. So let's look at verse 17. So he says it the third time, verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Not more than these. I know I'm forgiven, but do you love me? Because 
He brings Peter to the place. He wants to know what's in Peter's heart. He knows what's in Peter's heart. He wants Peter to understand this comparison, this life he's been living, this driven lifestyle. It all has to change because it's a race to the bottom. It all has to change if you want to do anything for him. Lord, you know all things. You know if I have the desire to compare anymore. You know. Number two on your notes. Spiritual influence lives or dies by our habit of comparison. You're done with comparison. I'm going to give you spiritual influence. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Spiritual influence lives or dies by our habit of comparison. When Peter started comparing in Matthew, what was the, his influence? Did it grow or did it fall with the disciples and everyone else? It began to die, didn't it? It was a slow, painful death. Jesus gets Peter to this place and says, okay, if you're done with comparison, I'm going to cause you to be the leader and the person I want you to be. And now life is coming back into him, and he's able to be life-giving to others. It's the thing. Hurting people hurt people. Healthy people help people. And he had to bring Peter to a place of health before he could do all the great things we read about in Acts and all the great things Peter did. They're found right. This is the start of it right here. He pulls out comparison, and he puts in this desire just to serve him. All right, this is what Ephesians and a few other scriptures say. Let me read it to you. Ephesians 5. This is verse 8. For we were once darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Jesus says, I'm going to expose this. I'm going to pull this out of you. This comparison is done with and have nothing to do with it any longer. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. He's done with comparison in his life. And there's one more in Corinthians 10.12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measure themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves. That's not wise. Peter, be done with anything on this earth. All I want you to do is follow me. You have no comparison with anyone, with anything. You're just following me. That's the difference between spiritual life and spiritual death. I was studying some um, uh, Olympic track runner stuff, and I found out that the Olympic trials were yesterday, and I was watching some of the runners, and I, was, and I went and studied track. And I want to know, okay, these runners that, are, that have to run in their lanes, you know, if you step outside of your lane, you know, it doesn't matter how fast you're running, whatever, you're disqualified. It's not as easy as it looks. Like, you just run fast. No, no, no. You can't bump other people on certain kind of races. You can't step outside of your lane. And what I found out is that the most common way for someone to 
uh, foul out is false starts, number one. And second is turning their head the way they're not supposed to. They train these, these track runners when they have to, not long races. Long races, you can kind of run all over the place. But people who run, you know, the 100, the 200, the 400, the 800, they have to stay in their lane. And if they turn their head funny, guess what happens when we turn our head? The whole body follows. So they constantly, constantly train these track runners to not turn their head the wrong way, to look to the left or the right, because they know if they do, it's going to throw off their, the way they run, and they're going to either step on the line or do something illegal. So that's the picture right there of life or death, that we don't compare and we have life in Christ, or we say, you know what, if we're always doing this or turning, it brings death into some area of our life, that God wants to be fruitful. Oh, he wants it to be fruitful. There's another great quote from Craig Rochelle, where comparison begins contentment ends. That is just a few words, but those are strong, aren't they? Ooh. Where comparison begins, contentment ends. I was looking for some comparison clips and some kind of illustrations or whatever, and I've been thinking, okay, what is a, you know, I'm in the baby world and I'm in parent world, I may think, hmm, I wonder what the comparison is if I just Google mom and dad comparison. I'm going to tell you there is a conspiracy out there for, against all fathers. I just Googled mom-dad comparison. What you're about to see is a conspiracy and is ungodly and unbiblical, and I'm exposing those, what is it, that? I didn't even prep that, those unfruitful works of darkness. There we go, it's in the Bible. Here are a few pictures. This is what happens when you, when you Google expo, uh, comparing mom and dad. I have never done that. I have thought about it, but I never did it. I don't appreciate that. Again, he's actually teaching the child not to touch fire. Let's look at another one here. Is that an aardvark? What is that? I've never done that. And the elephant's going to hurt them way, wor- way worse anyways. That trunk can, like, pick up a tree. That little thing's not going to hurt anybody. Come on. There, you got to look at that one real close. Look real close. There is a... <laughs> okay, there's no excuse on that one. There is no excuse for that one. I have done that. I have to admit. Hey, you got to do what you got to do. So you need to understand that comparison is out there, and it's never, ever correct. It's always skewed. Let's look at one more here, verse 19. So Jesus tells Peter his life. It starts off with, Verse 18, feed my sheep. Moses said, I say to you, when you were young, you goaded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you are old. That's a wonderful statement. What is the number one thing Peter is concerned about who just fell off the horse and struggled? It's the number one thing when you mess up and you get back up and you dust yourself off. What's your greatest fear? I'm going to do it again. 
I'm going to fail. I'm going to get mad at the kids and start yelling. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to fall back into something. But Jesus looks at Peter and says, I'm going to tell you something. I'll see you serving me when you're old. Those are not negative words. Those are powerful, supernatural words that fill Peter's heart and mind. The words of Christ are life themselves. And he says, when you're old, and Peter goes, I'm going to make it. He who began a good work in me will finish it to the end. Amen? So see that word of Christ. Fill his heart and his mind. When you're old, okay, I'm ready to do this as long as he's called me to. Then your ministry, he gives it to him. You used to do whatever you wanted to do. It brought you in a lot of issues, some good, some bad. You were successful in some ways. You got in a lot of trouble in some other. But when you're old, you're going to be so submitted to me. Instead of fighting like you used to do when they came to get me and you grabbed the sword and you cut off the servant's ear like you used to be, now you're just going to be like a sheep before the slaughterer. Now you're going to be like Jesus. No more fighting. No more Peter. Because you see the unseen hand of God sovereign in all things. And you'll just do what I want you to do. And you'll know that you don't have to fight anymore. You don't have to compare anymore. That your life is in my hands. And you'll go. You don't want to, but you'll go. Verse 19, this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. This he spoke signifying what death he would glorify God. Now to understand this statement in full, God has preserved some history outside of the Bible to confirm this statement. It's well documented. The early church fathers are unanimous in claiming that Peter died in Rome by crucifixion during the persecution of Nero in A.D. 64. Some of you may know that there is a church history. There is a um, pretty well documented that he was crucified. There were multiple kind of crosses, S-shaped crosses, X-shaped crosses, the most common T-shaped cross, but there were multiple kinds. We don't, we're not sure which kind because Paul, uh, Rome used all of those. What we do know that in A.D. 90, Clement of Rome testified to this, that he was crucified on a cross and not only on one, but a certain way. His last dying request. Some of you may know what it is. O Lord, he said, he asked that, Excuse me, let me quote this. I am not worthy to be, does anyone know what the next, the last words of Peter were? Compared to my Savior, please can you crucify me upside down. The most driven, uh, the one who struggled of the disciples with comparison, the one who had to be number one, it got him in hot water and issues and all of these things, said, I have no other comparisons except one. I don't actually even worry about everything going on in the world. I only have one concern. In fact, 
All I want people to remember about me is one thing and one thing only. Number three on your notes. Our only comparison is with the cross. That's the only one. Because that's the one that brings freedom. That's the one that says he paid it all, he did it all. Nothing else matters to me but the cross. This is what Paul echoed so clearly in Galatians 6.14. says this. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. How do you rid yourself of comparison? You die to it. I am crucified. I'm done with comparison. I'm free from it through the cross. So this is a little different Sunday. On the back of your notes, and not blank this Sunday, there's actually something written on them, which you already know. I was listening to um, a psychologist slash pastor who is heavy uh, into psychology and helping understand emotions, and, but comes with a biblical worldview. Now, don't listen to it unless they come with a biblical worldview. They don't know what they're talking about. Make sure that they have the word first. Then they go into whatever study they're in. This is the foundation of all things. Science, history, whatever it is, this is the foundation. So he began to talk about some things, and I added a few things, and I want to end today with this list and then give you some time to write some things down. So how do we deal with this comparison thing? This is just kind of introing this week to this series. How do we deal with it, with the minutes we have left? Things that stop comparison. Here's some very practical things, and it made me think in my life about this. Number one, first of all, above all, know who you are in Christ. Let's, let's just talk. Okay, we honored the word. We look at this. We see it in Peter's life. Let's just talk. The number one thing I see people comparing is they don't know who they are in Christ. I, I struggle with this for years because men always have something to prove. And if we grew up in a uh, uh, more of a dysfunctional home, we got more to prove. I'm a son of God through the blood of Jesus, and he's called me to be sanctified. That's my ultimate identity. Well, what if this isn't here? I'm a son of God. Well, what if something changes? Well, what if I know who I am in Christ. Amen. That will set you free longer and quicker and will hold you there more than anything else. Nothing else will work unless that's set. You are a child of God. You must know that you are a child of God, that his blood gives you that identity. Number two, you have to embrace you. You have to embrace you. If you don't embrace you, you're going to be trying to embrace someone else or something else. He made me specific and you specific, right? He made you with gifts and talents, and you don't have to worry about other people's. He, you be you. If you're a child of God, you're free. You will never stand before God for someone else's ability. You know the parable of the talents? One had five, one had two, one had one. Are any of those guys jockeying for position or upset that they're not the five, right? You just be you. 
Number three, this is the best one in my opinion, but subjective. Understand the difference between significance and prominence. Now, this one will set you free. Understand the difference between significance and prominence. This is major in our culture. If you are a child of God, you have infinite significance. Is that correct? Is that biblically accurate, right? But not everyone, in fact, very few, will have what? Prominence. What is the world seeking? They want prominence. You're nothing on American Idol if you don't make number one. You're nothing if you're sitting on the bench. You've got to be first string. That's prominence. You're nothing if you're not. You, prominence is what the world is seeking. Jesus says, you don't do that. That's what the Gentiles do. You're seeking significance in me, not prominence. This has creeped into our churches. You got to be on the worship team. You got to be this. You got to be that. You got to do this. You got to do that. Or, right? We, we, it's in our language sometimes. We're seeking prominence instead of significance. We need to focus on significance in Christ. I tell you one. The pastor asked him to do it, not me. That's seeking prominence, not significance. So let me ask you a question. Do you focus on prominence or significance in your day-to-day life? i got to ask myself this one. i got to think about it. What am I focusing on? Every success story has a backstory. We see people, the Instagram or the Facebook or whatever, we have no idea the last 20 years or the day before. Every success story has a backstory. This guy who was doing this, he's a pastor psychologist. 33 years he had been a pastor for 33 years. He said, we're a 33-year success. That's what he says. In year 18, when the church was highly successful and had over 2,000 people, they lost three key employees. One was, it went bad. It just, he got frustrated and went bad. The other two just went and did other things. The church went from 2,000 to 1,000. Half the church. He thought, oh my goodness, we are done. And it took him 10 years and the Lord teaching him these things. Now there are 4,000 with seven campuses. He says, guys, you don't know our backstory. You don't understand that I was so stressed financially in every other way. We had no staff. We had, we had debt. And he said, you don't know. Our, everybody wants to be here now. He said, I'm talking about we almost fell apart and went bankrupt in year 18. But God sustained us through it. Every success story has a backstory, So we don't compare. It'll set you free. Man, I should be this far along in life. I should be doing this in life. I should be making this much money. My marriage should look like this because I've been married for 10 years. That's comparison. Is that right? My kids should be... Number five, practice gratitude. Practicing gratitude will cure the comparison curse. It will. It will cure the comparison curse. Let me give you a study about practicing gratitude. There was a survey done with a group of psychologists who, um, who had a study group of people who dealt with chronic long-term depression. Chronic long-term depression. 
it did not give all the different types of depression, because I know there's different types and forms and all those things. This was the study. They gave everyone in the study who dealt with chronic long-term depression a journal. Their only, the only thing they could do in this journal was write things they were thankful for. They, had, it was a, they called it a gratitude journal. That's all they could do. After six months of these people could write no negative thing, they only had to write what they were thankful for, many of the people in the study, guess what? (laughs) They were cured because they changed and were thankful. Let me ask you a question as Christians. Are we called yay command? I just said yay. (laughs) Ye folks of yonder. (laughs) Are we called, commanded by God, to be a thankful people. Is that all throughout the Bible? Is it a command of God? Yes, it is a command of God. So we need to practice that command of being grateful, of having gratitude. Number six, practice discipline. Comparison comes from an undisciplined lifestyle, specifically that mind. Several years ago, I was uh, doing youth and praying and stuff, and the Lord spoke to me, and he really convicted me about something. He said, Stephen, do not spend a lot of time in fantasy because that road is a slippery slope. I'm a sci-fi guy and a nerd, and I like to, I'm not a nerd. Okay, a little. And I like to watch things that blow up in space and all that. There's nothing wrong with that. Good, good, good. He just said, Stephen, don't spend a lot of time in fantasy. Why? Because it's fantasy. It's an undisciplined mind. I said, okay, no problem. I'll spend this much time and not this much time, and I'll be good, right? That was the Lord saying, practice discipline. Number seven, grow yourself. Do you know what is the best way to create an exciting life that's not of comparison? Make an exciting life. Listen, you may, wake, you may have woken up this morning and say, I don't see anything exciting in my life. Nothing. Moms that stay at home and deal with poop and drool all day, this is you. Okay? You need to wake up and okay, say, okay, Lord, you've called me to do this. Teach me how to make this exciting. You don't like your job? Teach me, Lord. Show me how to change this culture. Are we salt and light? Do we change things? Are we supposed to change the culture we're in? Correct? Lord, teach me how to do this. Show me how to do this. Grow myself. What does Jeremiah 29 11 say? You know what it is. You know, the, you know the thoughts that you have for me, Lord, to prosper me, to give me a good and expected end. That's me saying, okay, Lord, Jeremiah 29 11, what do you want me to do? How do I grow myself for that good end? Number eight, be kingdom-minded. A win for the kingdom is a personal win for me. A win for the kingdom is a personal win for me. You can say it like this, whatever is good for the kingdom is good for me, right? Whatever is good for the kingdom is good for me. Number nine, shut yourself off to gossip. Most gossip is, is negative almost all the time. That's why it's so bad. This is why it's comparison. If I can make someone look small, I'll look big, right? So we shut ourselves off to that. 
because it's comparison. Most gossip is some form of comparison. All right, and the last one. There are some blanks there. We save some time for you to focus on this. In what area do you want to stop comparison? Spend the next few minutes, you and Jesus. In what area do you want to stop comparison? Now, this is the key. You can ask the Lord for this and to show you, and he'll show you great and marvelous things which you do not know. Okay, Lord, I'm sitting in church. Okay, Holy Spirit, I may not even be aware, right? I may not even know what's going on with me. You show me. It may come real quick to you, or you may have to sit there and say, Lord, what is it? So get a pen. It's right there in front of you, and I want you to spend the next few minutes doing that.
Will you stand your feet? In light of the gospel and what we've heard today, let's proclaim this song. We're going to start with these words. You take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. that in our life, in our culture of our church, in our culture of our home. Lord, remove it from our homes. Remove it. Pray with me, people. 
remove it from our minds. Let us instill a culture of acceptance in our children and where comparison is far from us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you're doing that. As you did it for Peter, we have the like common faith, just like him, he proclaimed. We have the same faith in the same God. And I thank you, Lord, that in all of our lives, in our homes, in our work situations, you're removing comparison from us, Lord. And you're causing us to live free. You're causing us to live above that. And oh, what great light to this fallen world when we have nothing to prove and are free in you. We thank you for it, Lord. And everyone said amen and amen. God bless you. Have a great day.